Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of Where Credits Do. This is Yulia Chutina, managing editor at Tearsheet. Today, we're having an honest conversation about buy now, pay later. The ease of use of buy now, pay later products has been associated with increased spending and could drive negative consumer consequences. This has prompted U.S. regulatory agencies to look deeper at this rapidly growing space. Last December, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau launched an investigation into the business practices in the buy now, pay later sector due to mounting concerns about accumulating debt, regulatory arbitrage, and data harvesting in a consumer credit market already quickly changing with technology. Then the Bureau issued orders to five buy now, pay later lenders asking for detailed information on the activities and risks inherent to their lending practices. Director Rohit Chopra ordered a firm, Afterpay, Klarna, PayPal, and Zip to submit information so that the Bureau can report to the public about industry practices and risks. Now the report is out and we're exploring it in today's episode with my guest Marshall Lux. With credit risk experience spanning over three decades, including serving as J.P. Morgan Chase's chief risk officer of consumer products during the global financial crisis, Marshall supports enhanced regulatory oversight in the buy now, pay later space. He wrote a paper on the risks associated with buy now, pay later and on what regulation could look like in this space. I'll provide a link to the paper in the podcast description. More regulatory scrutiny is needed to protect consumers. The way buy now, pay later affects credit scores is still relatively unknown. Credit scores could see damage, especially if issuances of buy now, pay later credit are considered single installment loan accounts that are quickly opened and closed, and if consumers are informed over the impact of certain credit behaviors, this could be a quickly slippery slope. On all of this and more, Tune in to our conversation. Thank you, Marshall, for joining us on the Word Crits 2 podcast today. Super excited to have you here because you are literally my go-to person when it comes to understanding buy now, pay later. Earlier this year, you've you've uh, written a really inspiring paper on the risks of buy now, pay later and kind of proposing some kind of regulatory intervention um, or guardrails uh, in order to really safeguard the consumer. It's, uh, you know, our worries lie with the consumer. Um, and it looks like the CFPB um, is uh, kind of on the same page, uh, doing it step by step. So last year, we've seen the CFPB issuing orders on a firm, Afterpay, Klarna, PayPal, and Zip to submit information so that they can report it to the public about industry practices and risks. And now um, we have the detailed report uh, published. And while the report doesn't really break new ground, it does provide us with some concrete data on this industry that it's kind of operated in the shadows uh, a little bit. And kind of considering the growth of the sector, uh, it's really uh, important that we kind of sit and, and discuss it and think about what are the implications here. But first, I want to ask you if there was anything that surprised you in this report. First, thanks for having me. Um, uh, there was nothing that surprised me. I thought there was some 
uh, good data, um, which was good to see. You know, I think the CFPB did a really thorough job. The one thing that, um, and we can talk about this, the one thing that they didn't do was to ask for risk uh, data. So there's nothing in the report about um, the fact that that these folks are uh, underbanked um, near prime, subprime. Uh, they talked a lot about the age, the ages of the folks. Uh, but, there, um, you know, one thing that um, I wish they had cited was the fact that these are generally near prime and subprime individuals. But no, there wasn't anything that was surprising. I think it was um, fairly comprehensive with that one exception. Right. Yes, there was information about, I guess, the age bracket that the consumers fit in, but not much about their financial well-being um, or, I guess, credit well-being. Um, and you uh, have mentioned in your report that um, I think it was like 67% or 57% right. of, of buy now, pay later consumers earn less than $50,000 annually. So yeah. that seems pretty important to mention, but maybe there's going to be in the next, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. So we're going to keep building on it. And I think uh, it's a, it's a good starting point. It's a really well, good starting yeah, no, point. I, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, my concern is that, um, and I applaud their efforts. I think that, you know, we're obviously in the middle of a global um, and a global, um, call it a recession and with high inflation. And so, um, you know, when they asked for the data, which was nine months ago, I believe, uh, the world's changed pretty fundamentally. And so, um, it's, it's a picture that, um, is important, but it's, you know, the world's changed in nine months. So, um, you know, the urgency of acting on this um, has accelerated. And uh, given that now the debate begins, um, it's likely, I think, that we'll have divided government and the wheels of government move more slowly than the private sector does, um, it may take some time before these recommendations get implemented. Um, but best case scenario, people start see the, see the, um, the picture emerge and will start to self-regulate. Yeah, for sure. And we need we need that in the sector. Like everybody knows that buy now, pay later met incredible growth. And now we have and now we have the numbers to show it, right? Like we we didn't have that before, really. Um the report shows by adding the the five leading buy now pay later providers that we've mentioned. We see that loan originations increased more than 10 times over the past two years, from 17 million in 2019 to 180 in 2021. And the majority of users have been under 33 years old. So we have here Gen Z and millennials. 
Um, but interestingly, also many older consumers are gravitating towards buy now, pay later. Um, like the, um, the proportions are have tweaked a little bit. There's been a few uh, percentage points added to, I guess, the older generations taking in from the younger generations. Uh, but the product is still really geared towards younger generations, which can pose serious questions about the risks of buy now, pay later. Um, and I know you have a lot of concerns on this front. Could you uh, share with our listeners why this is a dangerously slip, slipping slope? Sure. Um, well, one is that um, the both the near prime subprime consumers and uh, and younger folks, and there's obviously overlap. Um, you know, this product was well suited to helping people who would normally not get credit uh, easily um, learn how to build their credit, right? To develop thicker files, to show experience, um, and to learn how to use credit responsibly. But um, as the report showed, which was new to me, uh, I think it was 16% have five or more buy now pay laters, um, and roughly 5% have 10. Um, and um, as a number of the bureaus have shown, people tend to spend more, so they overextend. Um, and the decisions that are made are, are ultra quick. Um, so, um, the, and people do believe that it affects their credit ratings. So my concern is it'll have the opposite effect. It will um, hurt the credit of a generation of consumers. Um, both, um, you know, both structurally, it'll make it more difficult for them to borrow. Uh, but also it will teach them um, bad habits. And a lot of people self-report they spend too much, there's too, too much impulse buying that's gone on. Um, and technology has enabled this. I mean, it's, you know, any, anyone who's tried to shop online or even physically now, um can't escape it it's it's everywhere right it's literally everywhere right it's almost become like a default way to buy uh in some sense and i think in the minds of younger consumers uh you know that effect happens for sure and it's the the credit part of it is very interesting because the preferred payment method, so 90% of payments happen with debit. So that means that I, a, a lot of folks believe that they're avoiding credit. They're not using their credit card. This buy now, pay later is recurring payments and that comes off their uh, debit card and they're not getting into the credit territory. But that's not really the case, is it? I think this, this stuff is toxic. I really do. And um, and by the way, it's a global problem. Um, you know, this is a problem. I mean, I did an interview yesterday with a French um, journalist, um, 
you know, it's it originated in Australia. Um, and there have been, I think there's a hundred community groups that have banded together to protest it. Um, it's a UK problem. It's, it's a global problem. And, um, you know, it's a product that has caught on, you know, in, in this environment, it's just, it's very difficult. I mean, the, you know, the, the most shocking new statistic that I've seen is that 50 50 of the top 100 categories are now food. So people are putting cheese, bread, milk on buy now, pay later. Now imagine if you don't pay your milk on time, um, you're going to get, you know, let's say you pay $3 for a quart of milk, and then you have a $7 fee and interest on that quart of milk. I mean, it gets kind of absurd, and um, it shows the desperation that this economy presents. Um, and um, you know, it's just—it's a bad picture. I mean, grocery—I believe the statistic on groceries is that this year it rose ninety-five percent. Um, and buy now, pay later on grocery shopping. That's really crazy. And it's because it's it, it was supposed to be for things you can't afford. So not like people might have uh, uh, troubles now, you know, kind of with their day to day, given inflation, given the, you know, kind of macro pressures that we're all facing. But um, it's just there's a lot of um, there's a lot of features of the product that kind of bypass the user awareness and kind of feed into the kind of dopamine hit inducing um, kind of you know society that that we're that we're living in. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's um, like you know it's sort of human nature. I mean, like I've never used buy now pay later, um, but you know, when I buy something, you know, I've been tempted to say, hey, look, why, why should I spend X now when I can pay it over for payments on an interest-free loan or pay it over a year and pay interest, right? It feels better. Um, and you have literally seconds to make a decision. And the UX is done in the the user interface and experience is done in such a way that it you almost can't help but press that button. There's one provider which decided um, that emails were not fast enough, and they're launching uh, a texting service uh, because people respond to their texts faster. Um, and they read their texts. So it's kind of the height of absurdity after a while, right? It, you know, the problem with um, these things is that even if uh, the best providers do things, there's always the lowest common denominator. There's always someone that will come into a market and say, hey, we can do it faster. Um, we can find segments of the market. Uh, that no one is targeting. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before 
um, this is ubiquitous. This is just everywhere all the time. But is this even a viable business model? Because you did mention before that, you know, at this low transactional transaction value end of the buy now, pay later market, the unique economics have a harder time demonstrating the potential for profitability as standalone products. Um, so buy now, pay later companies, they, they struggle to charge the fees, fees high enough to cover the cost of services and customer acquisition costs. And most of them, are are yet to prove profitability. Um, so yes, it's bad for the consumers, but it isn't it also bad for the company? Well, um, I mean, personally, I wouldn't invest in one of the companies. Um, but um, you know, there are obvious, I mean, they're obviously worth something. Um you know, we've seen the decline in their market caps. Um, you know, it's like 90% decline, 95% declines. But, you know, the market's declined a lot for fintech companies. Um, and, um, you know, look, if investors are comfortable with it, I think that, um, then they're saying something I'm not. Um, you know, ultimately, prices, I mean, prices only go one way, right? They go down, right? So merchants over time will negotiate fees lower. Um, obviously, interest rates are rising. Um, but at the same time, the cost of acquisition goes up. Right. So, and delinquencies are rising in this segment, uh, which the CFPB cites, but so do others. Um, you can look in the securitizations and um, the, the earnings reports of these companies. So, the way at least I thought about it is there's only, only two ways to make these profitable, or maybe three. One is to slow growth. Um, and I don't know, um, to be honest, how much that'll help, um, but that's one option. Um, that'll make them more profitable or cut cost. Um, and usually people cut marketing costs before they cut anything. Um, two is to sell the data. And the CFPB cited that as a risk. Um, and um, and hopefully they'll act on that quickly. But um, it is interesting to, um, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and the third is to try to cross sell, right? Which has always been the holy grail, right? And um, in my experience, it's very hard to I think near impossible to convince people that they should open a deposit account or some other account on the back of a credit product. I mean, there's there's something in the one is these a lot of these people don't have they live paycheck to paycheck, but even if they didn't, um, there's something in the consumer psyche which says, well, if I don't pay, are you going to withdraw? from my account, 
Um, and you saw the news when PayPal um, announced that they were going to uh, penalize people um, for, um, you know, for certain transactions and there was an uproar. Um, so I think it's just, I think it's a quandary. I don't, I, I mean, someone smarter than me will figure out how these people make money. <laughs> and what do you think about the CFPB? Like if you were to kind of foreshadow where, what some of the first steps that they could take on buy now, pay later, uh, where do you think they're going to start? Is it going to be uh, with disclosures at point of sale with the fees and, you know, credit, uh, kind of how it's going to affect their credit. Um, so I guess the consumer education, is it going to be reporting standards or data privacy? You know, my guess is the two, um, the two most important areas where they'll start will be on data privacy and on, um, and on credit uh, metrics for the bureaus, that those two will be the areas where they'll, they'll start. Um, now the bureaus have been working on this for a while. Um, it's complicated, okay? And it's complicated because, um, each payment, um, on by, so let's say you're borrowing, let's, let's use an example over 12 months, right? Each of those payments is considered a specific transaction. So instead of it appearing once, it'll appear 12 times. Um, and also, um, they have not, uh, the one bureau, I believe it's Equifax, that has a buy now, pay later bureau that's been launched. Um, isn't linked to um, the other bureau. So, sorry, the, their other um, their other bureau, uh, their credit card bureau or the mortgage. So you don't have a complete picture of the consumer, right? And I've talked to a number of risk managers who'll say, look, I don't know how much risk this person has, right? I know there's someone who has you know, if they're using the that bureau, buy now, pay later bureau. Um, and I know there's someone who has a credit card. I just don't know it's the same person. Um, and so it's complicated. Um, you know, I suspect over time the bureaus will get it right. Um, but it's going to take time and it's going to take work. And it's not for lack of trying, right? I think they know that this is a priority that they need to to work on, but technically it's also difficult. I believe that generally people want to do the right thing. If you read one of the major um, suppliers of the product, providers of the product, it literally says on the website, we may or may not report you. We may or may not, right? Um, and, you know, to be honest, that's just not very helpful. Right? Um, you know, it would be better if it said, 
uh, we will or we won't. Being upfront, making the rules clearer, making it a little bit harder, linking it up, just kind of institutionalizing and professionalizing it is the right thing to do because look, consumers love this product. Merchants love it even more because they sell more stuff. Um, and it's not going away. And um, I personally think that, you know, it's a very healthy sign that regulated banks are getting into it um, and linking it up with um, your lines. Um, and saying, look, here's a different way to pay, right? So if you have a, um, a credit card, here's a different way to pay, and you may like this better. That's okay, right? And, and they're regulated, and someone's looking at the models and understanding it. Um, but, you know, those typically are, are prime and super prime consumers. Um, so it's, it's a different product for a different customer segment. I think that um, the report has surfaced. Um, the debate is beginning. And there was an, a letter to the editor uh, or an article in the American Banker, I think a week ago, or one of the heads of corporate relations for one of the companies said, well, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's not overregulate." And so the debate begins. And, you know, meanwhile, people are suffering. That's my concern, that by the time that anything happens, it'll be too late, right? And that, um, you know, I just, I wish that, um, and I'm not being critical, I wish it hadn't taken nine months to get the report out and with, divided government, I hope it doesn't take another year before we get anything done. Yeah, I don't know. I don't buy the let's not overregulate argument when you're not regulated at all. Like, sure, you can you can start saying that when you're kind of in it, but when there's nothing happening, uh, it's not really, uh, it doesn't really have a solid base, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, no, I, like, I, I agree. Like, the one thing we can be sure of is that whatever happens, ultimately, the, um, you know, the private sector will be one step ahead of the public sector. And uh, laws always get arbitraged. Dodd-Frank got arbitraged, right? Um, so, you know, the wheels of government move slowly and business moves quickly. And that's... You know, that's just, that's a reality. To read the transcript of our conversation, head over to Tearsheet.co and make sure you subscribe to Where Credits Do wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be out with a new episode every two weeks, bringing you conversations with industry leaders on the ever-changing lending landscape. And if you're interested in more content, you can subscribe to our lending newsletter and briefing in your inbox every other week. Thanks for listening and I'll see you at the next one.